Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Hey, um, thanks for coming in through the rain, as it were. Um, let's open with prayer, if we can. We'll get started. We're going to zip through a bunch of books today. <laughs> let's pray. Thank you, God, once again for bringing us together. Um, as we continue digging into your word, uh, help us uh, latch on to new insights and wisdom that pique our imagination and curiosity um, so that we can hear what it is that you are wishing to say to us, these words from thousands of years ago, what they might say to us in 2019 and beyond. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. All right, so real quickly, first thing I want to do is I want to uh, propose um, a modified schedule for our last few weeks together. Uh, I've got up on the board, if you're listening online, it's basically, I am going to cover today what is down on the syllabus for today and next week. Um, so it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine books, something like that. It's a lot of books. Um, and the reason that I'm doing this is because I want to get a week ahead so that when we get to Revelation, we can spend two classes on Revelation. There is a video that um, I want to show, and it's like a 45-minute video, so it would take up one class, maybe leave a little bit of room for discussion, and then the following week we, we'll, we'll dig in. I just <clears throat> I think it's really important that, that we unpack what Revelation is and what it is not. So I want to spend a little bit of time, I want to spend more time on Revelation, I think. So I'm, 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 I'm in, a, in a football analogy, we're talking about football, I'm calling an audible. Um, <laughs> And I'm not going to throw, try to throw the ball, uh, grounding it, and end up uh, getting intercepted. So I hope that's not what I'm going to be doing. Um, so if that sounds good, Which is then we'll pres- uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Okay. Which actually, now that I'm not sure that we actually cover those days, so I'm going to have to squeeze those in later. But we'll get those. But yeah, the pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, basically, they are instructions uh, to uh, churches about how to organize and have officers, more or less. Um, much later writings in, in the New Testament canon time-wise. I don't cover them today. I'm not sure where they are. I'll, I'll, I'll squeeze them in somewhere. So you won't even, you won't even realize I squeezed them in. It'll, it'll happen so quickly. What, that what they are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All in favor, please say aye. Opposed? All right. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, then with that, let's begin our book fest today. Um, and we are going to be wrapping up the, the, a couple of the undisputed letters of Paul. And then we're going to shift midway through the class and move into the disputed letters of Paul. We'll, we'll remind about why they're disputed. But we're going to look at First Thessalonians first. Um, so this even though it comes well into our New Testament canon, and it's not one that gets talked about much, it has the distinction of not only being the first letter that Paul wrote, but also being one of the oldest preserved Christian documents that we have in its entirety. Um, Written around the middle of the first century. And I think it was last week we were looking at some of the books, and they were the latter part of the 50s. So this is right at the beginning of it. 
Not surprisingly, it was written to a church in a city called Thessalonica, all right, which is fun to say. Uh, Thessalonica was a port city. Um, we see a lot of growing cities in that era with, with vibrant cultures and churches growing in, in places at or near the water. So this is on the northeastern uh, tip of, of Greece, if you will, sort of right there. This is an aerial view of it not too long ago. It's lovely. Um, maybe, maybe we'll do a class trip in 2020. <laughs> that would be great. <clears throat> um, Paul had a particular, uh, uh, was particularly invested in this church. It was one that he helped to found. Um, he feels very proud of it. And so he lifts it up as something that these other churches ought to follow their example. Um, but the real crux of what Paul was writing about, the, the issue that he was writing, um, was clarifying a fancy word that we're going to talk about in a second called the parousia, which is about the end times. And he's trying to clarify that because there had been some miscommunication about it uh, and a misunderstanding. And it's really about more or less the second coming of Jesus, number one. And number two, what's going to happen to the people in our faith community who have died? So we have to think like a middle first century uh, Christian in this regard, rather than someone living in 2019 where generations and generations and generations of people have died since Jesus, and we're kind of used to it. All right, But back then, you're talking 50 CE, so that would have been, what, 15, 16, 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? So the people in the early, early, early church that didn't even call themselves church yet, the followers of Jesus, they believed that Jesus was going to come again and be with all of them, all right? Um, but then time passed, time passed, and time passed. We're 10 years in now, 12 years in now. And people in these faith communities start dying. So this posed a bit of a quandary for the people in the churches. Again, it's something we're used to because it's 2,000 years. But back then, it was kind of like, oh, wait a minute. What happens to them? Jesus hasn't come back yet. We actually thought he'd be back a little sooner, but he's not back yet. So what happens to these people who have died? Are they, do, they, do they miss out on the fun? <laughs> when Jesus comes back kind of a thing. So Paul is writing a letter to clarify what happens to the people who have died, but also to sort of clarify what the second coming of Jesus looks like. Um, and the general the gist of the letter is he exhorts them to be vigilant in their faith as they wait for Christ's return. Don't, don't waver. Um, have faith. Jesus is coming back. He told us he was coming back. I know it's been 18, going on 18 years or 17 years, whatever, but hang in there. Um, so who knows that we'd be where we are now and still waiting, right? Um, that's kind of... So as we have here, just a general structure, looks very Paulinian. You got the beginning, you got the Thanksgiving, you got the main thrusts of the letter. You have some ethical exhortations. Again, this community that he helped to found, he wants to give them some specific advice. Instructions about the parousia, which we're going to look at in a minute, sort of the winding down and then the closing. Okay, all right, so let's talk about this word parousia. It is Greek, and the meaning of the word means being by or being near. The parousia. 
So when we talk about the parousia, we are talking about the second coming of Christ. But it is important to delineate. We are not talking about the end of the world. We often link those two, and I'm going to talk in a minute about why we do, but I want us to begin the process of pulling those apart because they are not the same thing. Okay? So as I said before, there was some confusion in this church about the parousia. They thought they had missed it. Did Jesus come back? I mean, it's been 18 years. Did we miss it? And then, like, what happens to the people who died if he hasn't come back yet? What happens to them? So it's a very, I mean, it is, it's a very practical kind of question that they're asking. All right. So Paul lays out the order of their parousia, and if you want to look it up, you can, but I'm, I'm walking through it right here. Um, actually, if you will open up to chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. It's, I know Thessalonians is a fun one to find. Yeah. 2078 page. Oh, you got the same Bible? Oh, that's nice. That makes it all the easier. Um, but we do not want to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. Okay, so there's the comfort. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangels call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And then he goes on to say, and this is important as well, in, in verse 5 he says, so I'm told you about all this is going to happen. Here's the deal. No one knows when it's going to happen. Which leads into the thing later where he says, just be awake, be vigilant, right? Um, he talks about how it will come like a thief in the night. So that's a, that's a fairly familiar passage. And then come uh, also uh, later on in verse 3, come as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman um, and there will be no escape, which is a little ominous. But you have, scholars have sort of uh, pointed out that you have more or less a male image and a female image. I guess the scholars think that only men can be thieves. But for, for, for whatever that's worth, you have these two images that basically Paul is saying, you, you just don't know when it's happening. So... Stay alert. So God will kind of descend from heaven. Um, the dead in Christ will rise, rise first. All right. We don't know what that looks like, um, but the dead in Christ will rise. And then the living Christians will be, and this is the expression he says, caught up in the clouds. All right. And then we're all going to be with the Lord forever. So this is the comfort that Paul provides to the Thessalonians that answers their concerns. Have you missed the second coming of Christ? No. What happens to the people who died? They're going to join you. God's got it figured out. And just be alert because it could happen anytime. No one knows. Now, what is important, really important to understand is this is not the same thing as the end of the world. It's not the same thing as rapture. The rapture. How many of you have heard of rapture? We all have heard of the rapture. It does sound like a very small part of it. Um, the rapture, 
was a construct created by an 18th century biblical scholar and teacher named John Nelson Darby. Um, it pulled in this verse, pulled in a verse from Corinthians, pulled in some, a lot of stuff from Revelation, some stuff from Daniel in the Old Testament, and created this very multidimensional, m- massive construct about the end of the world that incorporates... God coming down, the dead in Christ rising, the living going there, and then going up in the clouds. But it does a whole lot more than that. There's a whole a thousand-year reign, and, and the world is destroyed, and all this kinds of stuff that's not in the Bible. And also cherry-picking various parts of the Bible to do that. <clears throat> so, while this sounds like what we, what we call rapture, it is not rapture because rapture is much, 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 much more than that that is Again, cherry-picking things from various scriptures and also just creating stuff that's not even there. But this is so ingrained in our psyche as Christians that we think that this, that rapture and this are the same thing. So, the handout that I want to share with you, and if you are listening online, this will be available as a PDF at the web link where you get the, uh, the um, PowerPoints from. So this is a little document that I worked up some of years ago. It's a double-sided where on the left column you have kind of rapture theology and then on the right you have what Scripture actually says. So just go read a couple of these. On the right, rapture is a concept that is grounded in the Bible, but the word rapture does not appear anywhere in the Bible. The concept is the creation of a British evangelist named John Nelson Darby only 170 years ago. Um, Revelation points toward the end times of the generation. Revelation recounts the suffering persecutions encountered by the first century Christians. That's part of what we'll talk about. Um, Go down to number four. Revelation says that the Antichrist will come and rule the world in chaos before being ultimately defeated by God. The word Antichrist is never found in the book of Revelation. You will not find Antichrist in there at all. It's, in, it's used in First and Second John by the offer to describe some renegade teachers who are preaching a false gospel, anti-Christ. Um, go down the one that says, God will judge evil by destroying the world. There is nothing about destroying the world anywhere in the Bible. God will judge evil by restoring the world. There's actually a new heaven and a new earth. Um, God will transport the faithful to a different world after this one is gone. There is no other planet. But that's what, that's what true rapture theology believes. We will go to a whole different planet, which I'm always fascinated about how that mindset plays into creation care. Because if you, if you, if, if you talk to like strong, hardcore Pentecostals or evangelicals that sort of, they, they live, eat, sleep, breathe, whatever, rapture theology... Um, they're not really interested in, in trying to save the planet because in their thinking, it's going to be trashed anyway. God's going to destroy this world. So why do I need to recycle? I mean, I, when I was at Mount Airy and we were trying to institute curbside recycling, there were people in that community that were pushing back hard against that and hated that I was pushing forward as a pastor because they thought I was being anti-biblical by doing that because now I'm working against God's will kind of a thing, right? That's why a lot of them don't care about climate change. Right, right. I mean, it, it it is a strong possibility the correlation means something for sure, absolutely. So you can read over this um, at a later point. 
um, but it's sort of a point-counterpoint of rapture theology and what Thess- Thessalonians is talking about. So the main thing I want you to take from this is that there is nothing in the Bible about the rapture. There is nothing in the Bible about the rapture. Um, and also, there is nothing in the Bible about the rapture. Um, Was Darby European or American? Uh, British. Yep, British evangelist. So, this is Paul's way of providing comfort to these people that are dealing with some very specific uh, practical issues of living uh, the faith. And that's not to say that this is not going to happen, but again, if you look at rapture theology, it is a whole lot more than these three points. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to highlight that. Okay? So there's nothing in the Bible about the rapture. Moving on. Um, let's see, that was... Uh, that was 1 Thessalonians. Okay, great. All right, so there's 1 Thessalonians for you. We are moving on to Philippians. Uh, we are, this is written a little later um, to a church in, again, not surprisingly, the city of Philippi. All right, first church in what we would call modern-day Europe. It was written from prison. Paul was in prison. We talked, remember, about a couple of times that Paul was uh, imprisoned. Um, he did not just sit there and do nothing. He wrote some stuff, and we have a couple of those writings. Paul had a strong relationship with the church in Philippi. Um, this was the only church that we know of, at least, that we have record of that supported Paul's ministry with financial support. Um, remember, Paul asked for it from Rome, but we never found out if that actually happened. But he makes reference in this letter and thanks them for contributing to his stewardship campaign. Um, There's a strong possibility a lot of scholars think that this is a composite of different letters. Um, And and you, you, you might see a little bit of that in here, again, with some of the breaks and spaces that your editors of your Bible might have. Um, there's, there's one, take a look at verse, uh, chapter three. Let's see. Uh, I guess it's chapter three, verse one. Finally, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. And then there's like a space. And then you get to write the same things to you as not troublesome to me and for you as a safeguard. It's a little weird transition point, right? Um, you find the same thing. Chapter 4, between verse 7 and verse 8, not as noticeable. Um, You really find it at the end of chapter 4. Take a look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, right? So you you, you sort of see that there's uh, composites. Um, Pretty much basic structure, um, the body of the letter, Paul talks about his imprisonment, and, um, and then he uh, talks about Christian community, which we'll look at, uh, and then thanks them later on for their support. So, uh, we believe that Paul wrote this from either Ephesus or Caesarea or Rome. We're not entirely sure, but those were the instances when Paul was in prison. 
Um, there is a, a tone in this letter. Paul did not know what was on the other side of this for him personally. He did not know that he was going to get out or make it, or make it out alive or whatever. So the letter, um, he cuts to the chase. <laughs> he's not messing around. He's being very clear about what he says because he just doesn't know if he'll get a chance to follow up with them again. So, um, But what's striking about the letter is that even though he is in prison, which I'm sure was not a lot of fun, and even though he did not know if he would ever get out of prison, um, he has a fairly optimistic outlook of the big picture. He talks about how uh, this has actually benefited his work, presumably because he's maybe has gotten some notoriety uh, from it or that people are paying attention to him. I mean, the writings that he's sending out, people are reading them because they want to read about what Paul is thinking and pondering on in prison. How, how did he get writing materials? I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that was a... I mean, he is a Roman citizen, so maybe that was a perk that he got. Um, being a Roman citizen, he was able to request a scribe or whatever to uh, take his notes. That's, a, that's just a guess, but I don't, I don't know. So, send it by text. <laughs> so, uh, the big thing that... that that Paul focuses on in Philippians, other than his current situation, is um, this Christian community and how the fellowship of the believers needs to shape who they are and what they are about. Um, It mentions 2, 14 and 15, Do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. Which is pretty, I think. Uh, so he lifts up the importance of community in doing that. Um, but there's this really pretty section, um, if you will take a look at it in chapter 2. And if your Bible is like mine, um, beginning at verse 5, or technically six, it starts to look, you got indentations and, you know, almost like a psalm. Uh, Verse five, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equally with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, This is Paul's Christology, which is his understanding of not just Jesus the person, but Jesus Christ, what what it means to say Jesus is the Christ. Okay? And so because of the... I mean, again, we don't notice it... We would notice it if we were fluent in Greek or semi-fluent in Greek, but what the the editors of our Bible have done by, by putting it in this psalm-like format is to highlight the fact that in Greek there was a rhythm and a cadence that we would pick up on if we read Greek. I mean, I 
I, I haven't read Greek in a while, but I, I used to read Greek. Um, but it's very dense and rhythmic. So there's thought that this reflects some kind of an early hymn or some kind of an early church liturgy, if you will. Um, and uh, so Paul kind of pulls that in to be part of his letter here. When do Apparently. you quote that the most? I've heard you, I've heard that. I don't know. Um, so much. Is it Easter? Is it it it's it's actually I'm toying around with it being one of the scriptures that I use for this Sunday because this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I so some some communion liturgies um, probably use that. I mean, it's something that's f- yes, 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 yeah. So when you hear it, it's 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 kind of cool because it's like we're continuing sort of the the thing that Paul did when he sort of borrowed it and incorporated it, we do the same. But I am I am considering it for my Christ of King sermon this Sunday. Um, we get in chapter three. Uh, this this whole thing about circumcision continues to crop up every now and then and be an issue, and so Paul doesn't like that. That's also part of the reason why. Some scholars think that, that, that there were fragments because it doesn't quite fit in with the flow. But it, it does go to show, once again, how this continuing conversation about people needing to be circumcised uh, to be followers of Jesus continues to be a bugaboo in a theological term. Um, Jesus is the ultimate model of this fellowship, of this Christian community. We should do the same. Okay. Moving right along, looking at Philemon. So short of a book, it may know how many verses Philemon has, or how many chapters, rather, Philemon has. 25 verses. verses. It's a trick question how many chapters. There are no chapters in Philemon. Um, It is is 25 verses and no chapters. They didn't have, yeah. They just like, we're just doing this really short. And, th- and, and it's a really interesting letter, and I've got to find it in my Bible, too. I feel like I... Right before Hebrews. There we go. That's a good benchmark. Thank you. Um, Paul's shortest letter, written also from prison. Um, so the, the, the interesting thing about... A few interesting things about Philemon. Number one... Unlike all the letters he wrote, they were two churches, two bodies to be read publicly. This is written, this is just a personal correspondence to a guy named, again, not surprising, Philemon. Paul apparently knew him. And there's a personal message. And uh, it deals with an issue of a runaway slave of Philemon's. And Paul's asking Philemon to welcome him back. Um, the name of the slave uh, was Onesimus. Did something wrong and ran away. We don't know exactly what. It's referred in the letter, but we don't know what he was talking about. And so in, in, in a typical situation like this, you know, again, slaves are property, and so you, you don't have anything to do with them or you just sort of discard them and they are done. Um, Paul is, is imploring Philemon to exude a little grace um, and to welcome the slave back. Um, Paul mentions in here, I will settle the debt myself. 
which has led some scholars to think that maybe the transgression that the slave that Onesimus committed was stealing some money. Um, so we don't know exactly why Paul is sticking himself out there to help work the slave uh, or help welcome, encourage him to take the slave back. Um, maybe he knows Onesimus and thinks he's a really good person and just wants to write on his behalf. Um, what also is notable is that Paul does not really use this as an opportunity to uh, say any words for or against the whole idea of slavery. So, so this letter, it's interesting that it comes into our canon because it's, it's, it's not really talking about any theological terms. It's not writing to a church. It's just one-on-one correspondence about something that, our, that the church and Christianity in general has long struggled with. So, but it's in here, and it's 25 verses, and that's it. So, because it's short, we're not going to talk about it for very long. <laughs> but it is interesting. So, um, so now, we're going to move to the disputed letters of Paul. We have wrapped up all the letters in the New Testament that scholars are fairly certain that Paul wrote. Um, even though these letters use Paul's name, I, Paul, write this, there's strong uh, backing for the idea that they really were not written by Paul or dictated to a scribe by Paul. Um, and this highlights pseudonymity, which is a practice of writing something and attributing it to someone else's name to gain greater, greater credence. Um, and uh, just to, you know, so be like me, uh, writing a sermon and, uh, you know, putting it was Martin Luther King Jr. or something like that. I don't know. Um, so what, what, what really would seem to us in our day and time to be a huge breach of, of modicum, um, back in the day, this was a perfectly accepted practice. Uh, it sounds strange to us, but it was perfectly accepted back then. So the letters that are disputed are 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. Today we're going to focus on the first three. And again, just as a, as a reference back, um, uh, that um, the reasons that scholars think um, that they were not actually written by Paul, some theology just doesn't seem congruent. Some grammar, some verbiage words that these writers use are just not really the kinds of things that Paul would use, those kinds of stuff. The nuances that we might not catch up on just reading in English. Um, but they do have an important part in our canon. They do convey an important message. Um, even if they weren't written by Paul, even if they say they weren't written by Paul and they weren't written by Paul, they still have something important to say to the church. So that's why these are included in our canon. Okay. I'm sorry, I thought I, I jumped myself. I, I didn't know I had the slide in here. But some, some difference in theology from what Paul, some difference in writing style, vocabulary. Um, events mentioned that we, that, we, uh, that we know do not fit in Paul's lifetime. <laughs> so that's a big giveaway, um, which you kind of wonder why the person writing it would have done that. But again, it was an accepted practice. So, 2 Thessalonians bears some similarities to 1 Thessalonians. Um, some, 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 some real conspiracy theorists 
biblical theologians have wondered whether this was like a, a, a forgery, like they were taking this true Pauline letter and writing it in a similar style to make it seem as authentic as possible. Um, we're not exactly sure. Um, if it were Pauline, it would, be ri- it would have been written soon after 1 Thessalonians. If not, it would have been much later. And we find some similar issues to what Paul addressed in 1 Thessalonians that are going on here. Um, but what's interesting here is that people are still wondering, apparently, whether Jesus came or not. Um, some think that Jesus already came, and they just slept through it or something, I don't know. But now that Jesus has come in their minds, it gives them freedom to live any way they want to. All right? Um, that, that sort of the second coming of Jesus, that has been fulfilled, and we're in this special time, and so I can do whatever I want to. I don't know what that would mean, but it could be anything, I guess, as far as how to live. So that's what he wants to addressing. So here's the... Again, the letter format, salutation, thanksgiving, the main part, the Pyrenees, and the closing. It's only three chapters long. So what, what the writer of 2 Thessalonians wants to do in this letter is co- uh, uh, correct what some scholars have called apocalyptic idleness. <laughs> um, so they, you know, come, they didn't do anything. They didn't need to engage fellowship. They didn't need to uh, serve uh, tend to the least of these, all those kinds of things. And so the writer corrects this and lays out events surrounding Jesus' return, again, trying to give them some context, something to hang your hat on. Um, and we get a little bit of a discrepancy in the letter, which, again, might indicate that, that it is a, a separate author. Um, I think the main point of this letter um, is, is, and I know that both this letter and 1 Thessalonians are dealing with the same church community, um, but, but the main thing I think is that uh, church, the, the, the issue of struggling with what it means to live as a faithful community um, in changing times um, and where Jesus fits in all of that, something that we struggle with today, and guess what? It was something that, that early church communities struggled with as well. Okay? So, correcting apocalyptic idleness. and You can hold on to that one and throw that word out. That's a fun <laughs> word to throw out there. So, Colossians. If it was, in fact, written by Paul a few years after, in the late 50s, early 60s, because, again, that's when Paul did a lot of his stuff. But if not... It is happening in the late 80s. What else was written around that same time frame? That we've talked about. John was a little later. But more or less. But like Luke. Yeah. That was maybe like early 80s and this was late 80s. But it you, you can see how... In our Bible, we think very linear as far as these writings and when they happen, and that you know. But but that you really start seeing when certain things are conveyed and written. So I just think that's kind of interesting. 
Not surprisingly, uh, Colossians is disputed as a Pauline letter because of vocabulary, style, and theology. We've already talked about that as being a thing. But Colossians is a good example of why those three things do call authorship, true authorship, into question. Beautiful letter, wonderful message, but it's not at all the kind of thing that Paul himself would, would, would write or create. Uh, Colossae was the city where this church was located that the letter is directed to. And like a lot of places where letters were written in the early church, it was fairly diverse, a lot of religious traditions. Um, in particular, um, some cultic activity that were based on the Roman gods and that whole structure. And that specifically had a big impact on the church, how it functioned and how it operated in the larger community, if you will. Um, they were an outpost, big time. Um, and, and they were in a, a culture much more diverse than them and were trying to find their place in that. Okay? So the main emphasis of the letter is correcting the church's understanding of who Jesus was and who, what, what it means, what Jesus, what Jesus Christ means and what the nature of Christ is. Um, and again, as they're in this context with all these kind of Roman gods and goddesses and all of that, just trying to kind of clear the air and find out who Jesus is for them. A fairly typical letter, if you will. Um, we get this Christological hymn, and let's, I want to look at this. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Everybody there? So chapter 1, verse 15. And again, this is not him and the stanza thing like we saw earlier, but, but, but still, it, it was language that, would have, that was borrowed. He is the image of the invisible God, the first of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. So this is the other pastor that I'm pondering for my... Christ the King sermon for this Sunday. <laughs> um, again, the rhythm and the cadence of it suggests an already existing hymn that would have been familiar to the Colossians. So the writer is, 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 is um, presenting something to them that are familiar and engaging them um, and helping them to sort of unpack what it means. Um, but the real notable thing about this is the, ex is the extent to which Christ rules it's not just over the church, but it is over the whole universe. And the language that it elicits really accentuates that part of it. Um, which, if you think about it, would have been helpful 
uh, and comforting for this church if they are surrounded by all of these sort of Roman gods and goddesses in that context, for them to be reminded of this hymn, part of their liturgy more or less, that basically is saying Jesus is bigger than all that. Okay. Um, that's a good, I think it was, Helen, a town on the Lycus River in the Roman province of Asia. Um, so I'll have to get, get, a, get, a, get, a, get a map out and look at that. Well, but I think, I think in, in that time there was a Roman province called Asia, but yeah, yeah, so yeah, but that's a little Roman province maybe. Um, yeah, so it's more um, that way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what's notable about this is that there's similar language and images that we find in, at the beginning of John's Gospel. Um, he's the firstborn of all creation. I mean, we sort of get that thing. And if you remember that diagram that I drew on here, of sort of the pre-existing Jesus and then kind of down to earth and then back up. Um, So we get a nod to that in here. So what that could tell us is, and Helen, you may have been a hint on something if this was written. um, And again, that's part of the reason why they don't think this is Pauline because that's not the way that Paul thinks, but that if it were written in that late 80s, early 90s, it could be that the writer of Colossians was influenced in some way or familiar with that Johannine community mm-hmm. and the way that they kind of meshed the idea of Jesus Christ and Greek philosophy and understanding um, in that way. So we get, we get some, some, some hearkening back to that. Okay, um, Because of the location and where the church was, they could not help but be uh, fall victim to syncretism, which is sort of where you start incorporating some of the things in the culture around you into your own practices of faith. Um, and part of that was, and again, this would make sense in a, in a, in a culture that supported a sort of a polytheistic, multi-god kind of thing where Jesus is one of many gods that you can access the divine realm, right? Uh, so, so that's part of the struggle that this church had as far as how they lived out their faith and, and Jesus as above all others. So um, what the writer does in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 2 is this Jesus is the dwelling of the fullness of the deity, that language. So Jesus is the most direct path to God that you have is what he's trying to preach. Um, but what is notable about this letter that, again, we would not pick up on as much. Um, and again, another reason why scholars don't think this was written specifically by Paul is what the writer does do well is incorporates some of the Greek Platonic language and images and that kind of stuff to explain who Jesus is to them. We found that in, this, in, in, in that, that part uh, where I mentioned before about the similarities to the Gospel of John. So it, it, if you're speaking to a, a people who are living in a particular culture, if you can borrow their language to explain something different to them, then you're, you're ahead of the game. And that's essentially what uh, happens here. 
We do have an example, if you remember back in Acts, where Paul does that one time. Remember, he's standing in Athens, and he's got all the idols, and there's this one idol that says to an unknown God, and he says, I'm here to tell you about this God, but even some of the language that he does sort of borrows their understanding and, and philosophies and that kind of stuff. So this is sort of a similar kind of a thing um, that he writes about. Okay. Moving on to Ephesians. Anyone want to take a guess about uh, the city that this letter was written to? <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians. Written in the late 90s. Uh, I don't know exactly why scholars think that it's a close disciple of Paul's, but um, that's what I've read. Same kind of differences about why this is not considered a true Pauline letter. Um, written to the saints in Ephesus. There's your city. Um, and there is very little of personal anecdotes. Uh, and I'm talking like Philemon, where it truly is a one-on-one communication. I'm talking about in where he would write, the writer would write to a body, a church, there would always be a couple of people that he would say, check in on so-and-so with me and say hi to so-and-so for me. And we don't really have any of that in Ephesus. So the impersonal nature of it, it mean, that what that means is that it's really a writing to a mass of people that he, the writer probably does not have any direct connection with. Um, it is more theological meditation than a letter. It is more sermon, if you will then that kind of stuff. So <laughs> it, it, it could be the, uh, the stump speech, right? Or the, the, uh, the sort of, this is, you know, the, this is what I go and tell everybody. I tell it here and I do the same thing here and do the same thing here. It's kind of that feel. I mean, it's about as general as you can get. It means it's a good letter. It's still a good letter, but... Uh, All right, so what Ephesians wants to focus on is, the uni- is, is really the unity of the church. And it starts micro and gets more macro. So the first thing it talks about is the unity of the Gentiles and the Jews um, uh, and about how the two, need, the two are part of the same body. Uh, and you get this beautiful image in, in, in chapter 2, 19 through 22. Um, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we've seen images already of who Jesus is in sort of a, a physical depiction. So what we have here is, um, I mean, this is kind of, kind of cool in a way. You have a house, right? And in this house are both Jews and Gentiles. We're all living together, all right? Um, so where's Jesus in this? Cornerstone. The cornerstone, right. So what's the cornerstone? Yeah essentially the foundation. So it's kind of, you know, this, this, 
this structure that allows for Jews and Gentiles and all people to live together is literally held up by Jesus himself. So that's, that's kind of what we'll be getting at. But then what Ephesians says is it kind of goes broader than that. Um, and we actually looked at this at session last night. I think Warren was there and Betty. Uh, but if you look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, a Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And so there's, there's a sense of, again, we're all part of the same gathering. We're all part of the same one thing. Um, but then it goes on in the next few verses to talk about unity does not mean uniformity. That there's unity amidst diversity. So some people have this gift. Some people have that gift. Some people can do this. Some people are called to that. But we are all a part of this one household with Christ as a cornerstone and holding it all together is essentially what you're, what you're getting at. Um, so Ephesians gets referred to a lot in, 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 in times when um, faith communities uh, want to define themselves by who they are not rather than who they are or who is out instead of who is in. So a lot of times you'll find these verses from Ephesians kind of lifted up to say that's, that's not what the gospel of the Bible tells us. There's a sign as I drive out past the Methodist church. Maybe it's not still there, but it's been there this summer. Uniformity is, what did they say? Just what you just said. Unity is not uniformity. Correct. And they have that banner that's actually written there on Providence Road. You'll yep. see it if you ride up. Yep, yeah. That's a, that's a critical message for various times in the church's history. Mm-hmm. I think we're in one of them. So, yep. All right. So, and I'll, I'll circle back to First and Second Timothy and Titus um, at another time. But for the six we talked about today, um, if you, well, there's an elevator speech and then there's an elevator door closing speech. So if this is probably more elevator door closing speech for each of these six things, just as a recap, since we went over so many letters. So first Thessalonians talks about the parousia and how it's not, and for us, how that's not rapture. Philippians talks about Christian community. Philemon is taking your slave back. I don't, I I couldn't think of anything else. I'm kind of like, it's just personal correspondence. It's, uh, there's not a huge, deep theological message in there. Second Thessalonians, countering apocalyptic idleness, which is just a fun expression to say, if nothing else. Colossians is about correcting false teachings, and Ephesians is the unity of the church. So, um, there's your elevator door closing speech for these six books that we whizzed through today in 51 minutes. Um, yeah, that was crazy. Um, I tell you what, let's do, we don't have a PowerPoint, but let's take a real, we've got a couple minutes, let's take a look at Timothy and Titus. Um, and I will, uh, I'm just going to use my Bible notes to kind of, uh, to kind of highlight a couple of things. Um, these letters are li- written much, much later in, in, in the history of the church. Um, we're, we're probably, we potentially are talking into the early, early second century. 
they are very and what they what they represent is the church going from being what Paul had kind of helped to found, which was this sort of organic, free-flowing entity, kind of wherever the Spirit moves, to uh, more staid, foundational, hierarchical, structured kinds of things, which sounds extremely Presbyterian. Um, so, it, it what the the, the the letters are written uh, from Paul or the Lyle to this person, Timothy. We're not sure if he was an actual person, Timothy, or not, but it could have just been a nomarcher to kind of indicate this passing on of knowledge. Um, so it's, it's fairly generic. Um, you get in chapter 2, verse 11, we, we, we learn about uh, this person's stance let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach her of authority over man. She's to keep silent. So that's another kind of cue for us. If you remember us studying 1 Corinthians, um, where Paul refutes that thinking from the Corinth church. Another reason that we don't think that this letter was written by Paul. Um, first, chapter 3, we start getting uh, descriptions of officers. So here's your job description for officers. We have a bishop. Uh, must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. Good luck with that. Um, must not be a recent convert, so he's got to be a seasoned vet. All right? Then you get down to deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of faith. Um, so we, we have these description of these kind of officers, and then from that, um, just more uh, admonitions on how to live a faithful life. Um, chapter 5, verse 17, we learn about elders. The Greek word here is presbyteros. So, go figure, right? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says, etc., etc. Get on to to 2 Timothy and... um, uh, Not as much about the officers. Uh, I, I'm always drawn to... It's a little more personal uh, in, in, in note as far as writing to particular people and, and, and talking about them. You get Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that scripture, all, that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for re- reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Um, And you also get, in chapter 4, verse 7, I've fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So that's, that's a good one. Titus, um, more uh, descriptions of positions, a little bit about bishop, reminding uh, them to be subject to rulers and authorities and be obedient. Uh, tell slaves to be submissive to their masters, etc. So the, the pastoral epistles are called such because what they are really doing is they are describing or they're unpacking um, uh, guidance on how to live in the community of faith, more or less.
and in churches with a hierarchical structure what the officers, what their qualifications are. Is there anything in either one of these about um, celibacy and ministers? I, I was just wondering how the Catholic Church evolved with that concept. I do not think so. I'm not aware of that. Um, I think it's probably more of a Catholic later on development in the church than something truly found in Scripture. And it may be that the Catholic, you know, the Catholic Bible is a little different than ours, and it may be that they have something in one of theirs that sort of hints at that. But um, I don't remember Paul wrote about being single in one of his books. He, he, Paul did lift up the idea. I mean, not 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 full blast, but did kind of talk about you know if it's just you, you're you're able to focus on your ministry. Paul was an example of that, and um, and it could be that the Catholic Church really took that and kind of ran with it. Um, it's probably my best guess, but that's that's a that's a I'm 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 gonna look into that because it's something I don't think about because. I get to get married, and I am so. Um, but that's probably something good to sort of know about where that might have originated. Well, the books in the Catholic Bible that are different, where did they come from? Just different right. writings around the same time. Yeah. Actually, um, they have the Apocrypha, which is which is more of writings of. In our Bible, there's a gap from about 500 where we finish the Old Testament, um, and we talked about the Apocrypha like for 10 minutes, but. There's a gap between about 500 BCE and when these things were written in the New Testament. The Apocrypha includes some books that are written about and cover events during that middle time, if you will. Um, but you know, there's also, and this is not Apocrypha, but there's also, you know, there's a Gospel of Thomas, um, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Peter, that when the canon was created were left out for various reasons. Um, my favorite reason why is one of the Gospels. I can't remember which one it is. Talks about when Jesus was a kid and he was <laughs> he was there were puddles of water on the ground and he was making the puddles suspend in midair and another kid comes along with a stick or something and whacks the puddles and Jesus is quoted as saying, you insolent, godless dunderhead. And Jesus zaps him dead. It's not the Apocrypha, but it's in one of the, it's in one of the Gospels that did not make the final cut. Um, but I, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm entranced by the phrase, you insolent, godless dunderhead. Um, I've, I'll have to go. I'll have to go research that again. But I remember, I remember learning that in seminary and going, "Okay, that's that's pretty intense." Well, now, those books in the Catholic or Mary Thomas and so forth. No, they're, they're the yeah. They're, again, they're part of that writing that was more between the prior New Testament and the Old Testament prior New Testament. They fill in the gaps a little bit. The Catholic Bible does have. Does have Thomas? The, no, no, no. They have the other, but the, yeah, the, the other Gospels. 
No. They do not. Yeah, that's in that's in writings that have been found. Uh, the Nag Hammadi Library is one. I think I've got a book in my office, but I'll maybe maybe we'll take a look at that uh, the next time or two because it is sort of fascinating. Mm. Just, is that the same as the Gnostic Gospels? That's part of the same group. Yeah. Is this the the book Titus where we get heirs of grace? I believe you are right. I don't know. I can't remember the exact citation. Heirs of grace. Yes. Um, Verse 6. The Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All right. So next week, um, we're going to look at these last kind of letters, although Hebrews is sort of an anomaly, um, and sort of round off the uh, letter part of the New Testament. And then that just leaves us with the simple small book of Revelation to really dig into. And I'm looking forward to that. All right. I think that's it. Blessings to y'all. Stay warm and dry today. Difficult that that may be.